worse. It has an even greater emphasis on signs and wonders and modern day apostles. With the New Apostolic Reformation, you would have guys like Bill Johnson, Todd Bentley, Todd White, um, uh, Heidi Baker, some of these individuals. And, and they're basically one and the same. There's a little bit of distinction between word faith and NAR, but not a great deal of difference. The only real distinction would be more in their eschatology. Uh, NAR would be kind of like post-millennialism on steroids. They uh, get into dominion theology, seven mountain mandate, and all that kind of stuff. But what we're seeing today is that the word faith NAR movements are blending together. And they're just kind of melding into one heretical theological stream. And you have classic word faith guys like Kenneth Copeland, who would be the grand poobah of the word faith movement, uh, cross-pollinating with Bill Johnson, who would be kind of the grand poobah of the, the NAR movement. And they speak at each other's conferences. And so they're basically becoming one and the same. And uh, as Pastor Kurt said, I'm going to switch up our, my presentation in your, in your program. What is scheduled for tonight, I'm going to do right now. Uh, that's because of some of the tech issues. We still have a few bugs to work out. So this presentation doesn't have really uh, a lot of video clips, so mainly just text. So I think it'll work well, and plus the subject matter. So I want to talk a little bit about discernment in general, and then Lord willing tonight, we will get into the meat and potatoes of the Word of Faith movement, their doctrines. But let's just lay a little groundwork here, talking about the importance of discernment, the, the, the quality of being able to grasp or comprehend what is true, what is appropriate, being able to sift through truth from error, right from wrong. One of the things that makes false teachers so appealing to people and yet so profoundly dangerous at the same time, thank you, is that not everything that false teachers teach is false. Some of it is right. But there's enough error and heresy mixed in with it to corrupt the entire thing. Uh, a little bit of poison corrupts the whole thing. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Satan does not show up to us red and scaly with a bifurcated tail carrying a hay fork. He's smarter than that. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So the quintessential passage for discernment in the New Testament, undoubtedly Acts 17 verse 11. For the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Thessaloniki in the Greek, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Apostle Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel and they came to the city of Thessalonica. But in Thessalonica, some of those in Thessalonica did receive Paul and Silas, but there was a group of rabble rousers basically that kind of ginned up a mob against Paul and Silas, made things very dangerous for them. And so the other believers there in Thessalonica shepherded Paul and Silas out of Thessaloniki for their own safety. And so they left there and then they came to the city of Berea. And in Berea, Paul and Silas were received quite well, as was their message. And notice that the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, why? Why were the Bereans considered more noble than those in Thessalonica? I think we have three indications in this one verse. Number one, the Bereans are considered noble because they studied 
the law. They were students of God's word. Dear friends, we must be good students of the word of God. God has revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in his word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing his word. So we must be good students of the word of God. And yet so many professing Christians today, and please do note my use of that term professing, they have this sentiment, they have this idea that somehow knowledge of God and love for God are different concepts. They're, they're antithetical to one another. And you may have heard someone say something like this. Well, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. That is a foolish thing to say. It's a foolish thing to say. Because if we truly love Jesus, don't you think we would want to get to know him? And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, that enables our love for God to be deepened. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. He says, in this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and discernment. You see, the Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. It always combines these things. And so all these people talking about how much they love Jesus, but they couldn't tell you the difference between Romans and Revelation. They don't ever study the Bible. Then I would submit to you that they don't love Jesus nearly as much as they profess to love him. Because if we truly love him, we're going to want to get to know him. And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. And men, I want to address the fellas here just for a second. Men, it is our, it's our spiritual responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in our home. And men, being the spiritual leaders in our homes does not simply mean taking our families to church on Sunday morning. It includes that, but you've just barely scratched the surface. Men, being the spiritual leaders in our home means that it is our responsibility to teach the word of God to our wives and to our children. We are to be doing this. Do you know that various studies show that upwards of two-thirds to maybe even three-quarters of children who are raised in evangelical homes, and we're not even talking about Roman Catholics, but just evangelical homes, and they make professions of faith at very early ages, five, six, seven, eight, nine years of age, and they get baptized. Once they grow up and they leave home, they go off to college or they start their own career or start their own family. Once they leave home, guess what else they're leaving? They're leaving the church. They're not coming back. Oh, but, but they got saved. They got baptized. Well, they may have been baptized, but they were not saved. A genuine Christian can stray from the Lord for a season, for a season, but not indefinitely. If you truly belong to Christ and you stray from him, you know what he's going to do for you? 
He's going to discipline you. He's going to put you in the middle of Hebrews chapter 12 and he will bring you back. And so all these kids that are making professions of faith and they're, quote, asking Jesus into their heart, uh, and they're getting baptized. Well, they may have gotten baptized, but they weren't saved. And men, the responsibility of this in large part, now not in totality, not in totality, because some men are the spiritual leaders in their home and their, their children still straight. But the vast majority of men have exported their spiritual responsibility to the Sunday school teacher or to the youth group leader. And men think, well, well, my kids get everything they need in Sunday school. My teenagers get the, everything they need in the youth group. No, they're not. No, they're not. Men, the very best Sunday school teacher with the very best of intentions cannot do what God has designed you and me to do. Can't do it. Now, I'm not against Sunday school. I'm not against that. But that should be supplemental. Look at what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 11. You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children. Talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you rise up. Men, are you doing this? Are you talking of the things of the Lord with your wives, with your family, with your children on a regular basis? When you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you rise up, God has designed us to do this, men. It's our responsibility. Also, the Bereans, well, let me see. Uh, the Bereans were noble because they had their minds engaged. They were students of God's work. I'm not sure if this is going to work. We'll see how it goes. Watch this from Joyce Meyer. That sounds awfully loud. I don't want to blow anybody out. Is that? Okay, let's. Okay, so for those of you who are not rip, lip readers. Um, <laughs> okay, I was afraid that wouldn't work. All right. We can, you can cut the audio to the, that mic over there. Okay. Uh, Joyce Meyer says, if you want to, if you, basically she says, if you want to get close to God, you've got to disengage your mind, disengage your head. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? No. The Bible says that we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. The Bereans were noble because they received the gospel with ready, engaged minds. Uh, we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He gave us a mind for a reason. He wants us to use it. Uh, this is, of course, another video clip, but I'm not going to play it because the sound's not going to work. The Bereans had their minds engaged. One of the things that you'll notice about false teachers is that false teachers encourage you to disengage your mind, to put the old noodle in park. The disengaged mind is the friend of the false teacher. Because when your mind is disengaged, you become much more pliable. You become much easier to control and manipulate. You become much easier to exploit. And you begin to believe things that otherwise you would never have believed. 
The disengaged mind is the enemy of the Christian. It's the friend of the false teacher. And also, the Bereans were considered noble because they tested what they heard by the scriptures. Even though they received Paul and Silas, they received what they were teaching. Notice that they did not take what Paul and Silas were preaching at face value. It says they searched the scriptures to see if these things were really so, to see if what Paul and Silas were preaching about Christ really did plumb with the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. I would encourage you not to take what I teach you uh, today or or Phil or Kurt for that matter. Don't take what we say at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. Because we're not the authority. God's word is. And it's interesting when you read Acts 17, um, after Paul and Silas were in Berea, then those back in Thessalonica, they got word that Paul and Silas had been received well by the Bereans. And so they left Thessalonica, traveled to Berea, and ran them out of Berea as well. And that kind of came into a stark relief for me a few years ago. Uh, I was in Greece, and I was in Thessalonica, and I went to Berea, and they're 50 miles apart from each other. Now, 50 miles for us today, no big deal. You get in the car and you're there in less than an hour. But 50 miles back then, that was a much bigger endeavor. The false teachers weren't satisfied to, to run Paul and Silas out of their own hometown, Thessaloniki. They also ran them out of Berea. And it shows you the level of hatred that the enemies of the gospel have towards the gospel. It's a... It's a, almost a demonic hatred. What we're seeing in Israel right now, it's a, it's a hatred on the part of, those, of the Palestinians, to use that term, um, towards Jewish people. It's a demonic hatred, a hatred of the truth. Why do we need discernment? We need discernment so that we will not be like little children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Friends, we are living in a day and age today in which there are many winds of doctrine blowing about us. And if we don't have discernment, if we don't know what we believe and why we believe it, then we will be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. I saw a study some years ago and it said that of those adults who convert to Mormonism at some point in their adult life, so adult converts to Mormonism, Guess what the theological background is of about half of these people? Southern Baptist. Southern Baptist. Now I can pick on the SBC because I was born and reared Southern Baptist. I was going to a Southern Baptist church nine months before I was born. One of those situations. And Southern Baptists, they pride themselves on being people of the book. They say, we're people of the book, people of the Bible. But so many Southern Baptists and evangelicals in general know just enough Bible to be dangerous. Just enough to be dangerous. At some level, they kind of sort of know what they believe, but they don't really know why they believe it. And if you were to ask many Southern Baptists and evangelicals in general today, well, well, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe the Bible? Well, I was raised that way. 
Hope you got a better answer than that. Friends, we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Because if we don't, we'll be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. How important is discernment? Very important. I want to bring your attention to Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Now, pause here just for a second. God gave them over. Sometimes we think of God's judgment in acts of dramatic fierceness like earthquakes, famines, fires, pestilences, you know, those kind of dramatic things. But dear friends, I would submit to you that the most fearsome act of God's judgment is his wrath of abandonment when he simply gives people over. Do you know why we're seeing what we're seeing today in our culture? Do you know why it is that the, the co-worker that knew, you knew uh, yesterday is Sam and he shows up this morning wearing a dress and wants you to call him Samantha and refer to him by his preferred pronouns? You know why we're seeing that kind of nonsense going on? Because we've been given over to depraved minds. Dear friends, please understand, we're not headed for the judgment of God. We're there. Homosexual marriage, which is a contradiction in terms. Um, I don't believe in homosexual marriage. And when I say I don't believe in it, I don't, don't simply mean I disagree with it. I mean, I don't think it's a thing. I don't believe in homosexual marriage like I don't believe in square circles. God gets to define marriage, not the United States Supreme Court. But there was a lot of hand-wringing ringing, uh, leading up to that decision back in 2015. Oh, if the U.S. Supreme Court does this, it's going to bring the judgment of God. No, no, no. It's not going to bring the judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. We're already there. People can no longer even think at the most basic levels. Now watch this list of sins in verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, gossips, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning. Is that not sobering? Notice in this list of sins, horrific sins, Sins from which we would hopefully recoil, lacking discernment. That's a sobering passage of scripture. Dear friends, Paul here is not talking about backslidden Christians. He's talking about lost people. These are people who have been given over to depraved minds. One of the signs of spiritual death may be a perpetual lack of discernment a perpetual lack of discernment. Uh, I have some gospel tracts that look like million dollar bills. And on the front, instead of one of the presidents, I have a caricature of Joel Osteen. <laughs> and you know Joel Osteen, right? I mean, this is, Joel Osteen is a man who has not once, not twice, not three times, but has repeatedly denied the exclusivity of Christ. Repeatedly. This is a man who by his own admission says, I don't preach on sin. 
And I'm not putting words in his mouth. He'll tell you that. I don't preach on sin. How do you preach the gospel if you don't preach on sin? And if you've listened to one of his sermons, if you've heard one of them, you've heard them all. I mean, they're all the same. I, I would leave his church out of sheer boredom, if nothing else. And so on the back of these gospel tracts, I have the true gospel written out. And uh, someone, I have no idea, but several years ago, someone was out on the strip in Las Vegas passing out my gospel tracts, apparently, because this man and his wife were given one, and uh, the guy read it and was just fit to be tied. He looked me up, went to my website, he emailed me, and he ripped me up one side down the other. He said, my wife and I have both been Christians for over 50 years, and we love Joel Osteen. And I replied to him, I said, sir, I'm concerned for you. You claim to have been a Christian for over 50 years, and you like Joel Osteen? Something's wrong. Dear friends, you don't have to have much discernment to realize that Joel Osteen is a false teacher. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, he is strong enough to deliver us out of deception. He's not a weakling. He's not a girly man. He's strong. Those whom he saves, he sanctifies. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about young Christians, baby Christians. You know, all of us start off as baby Christians. We all do. But the funny thing about babies is that babies don't stay babies. Babies grow up, right? And so if you are truly a Christian and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, he creates in you a desire to read and study God's word. He creates in you an ability to understand it and to appropriate the truths of scripture. And as this process goes on, as time goes on, guess what you're going to grow in? Discernment you won't be able to avoid it. I mean, it's just going to happen. Now, granted, some people mature more quickly than others, but the tra trajectory of a Christian over time is one of an increasing knowledge of Scripture, a decreasing pattern of sin, an increasing level of holiness, and an increasing level of discernment. And someone who says that they've been Christian, a Christian for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 plus years... And they like Joel Osteen? Something's wrong. Something is wrong. I want to now look at some of the objections that people raise. When we exercise discernment, we encourage uh, others to do that. A lot of people won't like that. And so we'll look at some of their common criticisms and then we will answer them from Scripture. Judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged, one of the most often misquoted, taken out of context passages in all of God's word. Jesus does indeed warn us not to judge, but the kind of judging against which our Savior warns is hypocritical judging. Judging somebody for doing something that maybe we're really doing ourselves, that is what Jesus warns us against. But the answer to this is that in fact we are to judge safely within biblical parameters. Dear friends, when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of theology, we absolutely are to judge on these things safely within biblical parameters. 
In fact, Jesus tells us, judge with righteous judgment, right? Uh, over and over, we are commanded to judge. We're just not to judge hypocritically. Another criticism is this, you shouldn't name names. Well, it's one thing to call out a false teaching, but don't ever call out somebody as a false teacher publicly by their name. Don't ever do that. That's not right. Well, the answer to this is that, in fact, there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Paul, Peter, and John did so very publicly on multiple occasions. They called out Demas, Phygelus, Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, Alexander, Philetus, Balaam, Diotrephes. They all called out these false teachers publicly by name. Now, this should not be done lightly, and we should not call someone a false teacher if they differ with us on some relatively minor theological point. You know, maybe in your eschatology, maybe your premillennial, pre-tribulation in your eschatology, but you know some cat down the road down here, and he's, uh, he's pre-millennial mid-tribulation in his eschatology. Oh, that, that false teacher, that heretic. No, no, we don't, we don't call someone false teacher a false teacher for something like that. But when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity, the pre-existence, co-eternality of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, sinless life, bodily resurrection, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the nature of God, the nature of Christ, the nature of man, on these issues we draw a deep line in the sand. And all the individuals that we'll be looking at, Lord willing, tonight, they have been teaching jaw-dropping heresies for years, some of them for decades. They've been called to repent, and yet they will not. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Another criticism is this. Well, we should just follow Gamaliel's advice. Gamaliel. Well, well who in the world is Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a Pharisee. And he was Saul's instructor before his conversion, of course. And uh, in Acts chapter 5, this was before Saul's conversion. But in Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were in Jerusalem preaching Christ, preaching the gospel. They had been warned by the Pharisees not to preach in the name of Jesus, but they had to obey God rather than man. So they continued to preach in the name of Jesus. They were thrown into prison. God delivered them out of prison. And so they were causing a real stir there in Jerusalem. So the Pharisees got together and they had a little meeting, a little powwow to try to decide, well, what are we going to do with these Christians? And so we read about this in Acts chapter 5. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all of the people, stood up in the council and he gave orders to put Peter and the apostles outside for a short time. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men, leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. So even though 
people may not know to call it Gamaliel's advice, they still follow this general principle when it comes to questionable teachers. They'll say, well, you know, if these people you're talking about, if they're not of God, they won't last. Don't worry about it. Flash in the pan. Don't worry. They, they, they won't last. On the other hand, if they are of God, we should not oppose them because in so doing, we would be found fighting against God himself. So let's just kind of have a laissez-faire approach, right? You know, if, if they're not of God, don't worry. God will take care of them. But if they are, we should not oppose them because in so doing, we'd be found fighting against God himself. Now, that sounds like reasonable advice, doesn't it? You could even say that that sounds like spiritual advice. Sounds like a very spiritual thing to say. But Gamaliel's advice is very bad advice for two main reasons. Number one, Gamaliel was not a believer. We have no indication that Gamaliel ever came into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can safely say at this point at least he was not. So to follow Gamaliel's advice would be to follow the advice of a lost person. Generally not a real good idea to do when it comes to matters of spiritual importance, right? But number two, Gamaliel's advice doesn't even pass the common sense test because false religions abound. If Gamaliel's advice was good advice, why do we still have Mormonism? Why do we still have Buddhism? Why do we still have Islam? Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, there's one right across the road. Why, why do we still have these cults? I mean, these false religions have been around for hundreds, some of them for thousands of years. Clearly, they're not of God, and yet they're still here. So Gamaliel's advice doesn't even pass the common sense test. May sound all spiritual to say it, but it's bad advice, bad advice. Another one of their criticisms is this. This is almost always how they respond. Anytime they get a little scrutiny on them and the heat's turned up just a little bit, this is almost always their knee-jerk response. This is what they say. Touch not my anointed. Touch not my anointed. Don't criticize me. Well, when you hear this, this is how you can respond. Okay, take not scripture out of context because that's what they're doing. Touch not my anointed. Is it biblical? Well, it's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible, but what does it actually mean? Psalm chapter 105. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel. He reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So it is biblical, but what does it mean? Well, in context, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers. Okay, not to today's modern preachers. But here's the real kicker. The word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. You might remember that David had a couple of different opportunities to kill Saul. Remember that? On one occasion, Saul was asleep. And the other occasion, Saul was... Nature had called, right? And so Saul was sitting there reading the paper, doing whatever he was doing. And David came up behind him and cut off a piece of his garment, right? And then he held it up and he said, I would not touch the Lord's anointed. I could have, 
I could have killed him. Here's a piece of his garment. But I would not touch the Lord's anointed. So we may be calling into question a lot of different false teachings taught by a lot of different false teachers, but none of us is chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. Okay, nobody's trying to do anybody any physical harm. Good thing, by the way, that we're living on this side of the cross for the false prophets anyway. Uh, good thing for them because, dear friends, let me tell you something. If we were in Old Testament days, Benny Hinn and Joyce Meyer and Joel Osteen and fill in the blank, a whole lot of them, they would have been stoned a long time ago. A long time ago. One of the fundamental problems of the charismatic movement is that the charismatics, honestly, let's just get real honest about it, it's not a big deal for them to put words in God's mouth that he did not say. It's not a big deal. All of these charismatic prophets, that, that is the bread and butter of the charismatic movement. God said this, God said that, God told me this, God showed me that. I prophesy this, I prophesy that. And they're proven wrong over and over and over and over ad nauseum. But they just keep going. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal for them. They should tremble at putting words in God's mouth that he did not say. We all should. And by the way, there are three New Testament passages which refer to all Christians as anointed. You hear charismatics say this all the time. Oh, well, well he gets dreams and visions and uh, God talks to him and, and he might even go to heaven every once in a while. You know, he, he's really anointed. So if you get dreams and visions and God speaks to you and still small voices, which is completely taken out of context, but let's go with it. When you, you know, do all this, uh, you're, you're anointed. But if you're one of these poor old souls and all you've got is the Bible with the indwelling Holy Spirit and let's say you've got the gift of uh, teaching, eh, that's not very anointed. You know what that is? That is a modern expression of Gnosticism. Gnostics who, who divided Christians up into classes, the haves and the have-nots. If you're in Christ... If you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, guess what, dear friends? You're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other believer. There are no super Christians with the super special anointing that the rest of us common knuckleheads just don't have. If you're in Christ, you're anointed. You have the same access to the same God, to the same gospel. You're indwelt by the same Holy Spirit as is every single believer. Another criticism is this. Well, you're just not very loving. It, it, this is not a loving thing to do. It's not loving to tell someone that they're wrong. That's, that's not loving. The answer to this is that the truth is love. The truth is love. Let's suppose we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff. Now we're in Illinois, so you have to use your imagination a little bit, but let's, let's suppose we were to say, see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff. 
Who among us in here would see that and just sit back and think to ourselves, ah, you know, I, I don't want to offend him. I might hurt his feelings if I tell him he's going the wrong way. That might hurt his self-esteem. You know, and who am I to judge? Maybe that's his truth. And so we just sit back and we say nothing. And we watch that man fall off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would anybody in here do that? Of course not. Every person in here, if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand foot cliff, we would all be yelling at the tops of our lungs, sir, stop. You're in great danger. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. And yet don't we do the very same thing only far worse with far greater consequences, eternal consequences when we see people going the wrong way spiritually and we know the truth and we don't tell them? If you want to hate somebody, do that. Know the truth. Don't tell them. If you want to love someone, love them enough to tell them the truth. It is not up to us how that truth is received, but it is up to us to communicate it. And sometimes, dear ones, members of our own families are the hardest ones to speak the truth to, aren't they? Way easier to speak the truth to someone that you run into at the gas station or something like that. Real easy to speak the truth to someone on social media, on Twitter, that's, that's easy. But when it comes to members of our own family, that's hard, right? Because there's a risk there. And they know us so well. And it's, it's hard. But if we truly love them, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. Again, it is not up to us how that truth is received but it is up to us to communicate it. And there is a way to speak the truth. Paul tells us how to do it in Ephesians chapter four. We're to be speaking the truth how? In love, right? Speaking the truth in love does not mean we water down the truth. Doesn't, doesn't mean we apologize for the truth. It means just what it says. We are to speak the truth, the full truth, but speak it in love. Speak it out of compassion and care. Just don't be a jerk about it. And at least, at least, we will have the blessing of having a clear conscience. Might it cost us? Oh, yeah. Might it cost us relationships within even our own family? Oh, yeah. But at least you'll have the blessing of having a clear conscience that you did what was right before the Lord and you trust God for the results. And finally, last criticism is this. Well, yeah, Justin, maybe they're wrong on a few things, but, you know, they seem so sincere. Uh, Joel Osteen seems so sincere, and he just smiles all the time. He just seems so sincere. The answer to this is that sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Friends, the men who flew airplanes into, world, into the World Trade Towers were sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. And right now, they are all too well aware of that. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Hope this has been helpful for you this morning.
just a brief look at the importance of discernment, answering some of the common objections. And, um, you know, dear ones, the Bible is full of warnings of false doctrine and false teachers. In fact, 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament directly warn about false doctrine and or false teachers. It is a prominent theme in the New Testament. We must teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, per Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And though it can be discouraging as we see the preponderance of false teachers out there, there are so many. Uh, this is not something that should surprise us. Your word tells us that they would come and they're here. And so, Father, may we be equipped. May we be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And may we speak your truth to people in love. For the glory of Christ our King. It's in his name we pray. Amen.